Welcome to The Readings Podcast, a fortnightly celebration of books. In today's episode, the author Judith Brett will be in conversation with Susan Carland. Since the 1980s, Brett has been helping to shape Australians' conversations about politics, bringing a historian's eye to contemporary issues, and probing the psychology of our Prime Ministers. Brett has interrogated some of our most complex issues, multiculturalism, the politics of rural Australia, the Republic, mining, and climate change, our electoral traditions, the way ordinary people do politics, and the decline of universities. Always she writes as a citizen for her fellow citizens, in her distinctive voice, inquiring, accessible, and wry. Her new book, Doing Politics, brings together the finest essays, and we're delighted to have Brett with us to discuss her important work. Before we start, a quick reminder. As this is a recording of an event held live via the internet, there's been some impact on the sound quality of the episode. And now, here's the host of the event, Reading's Programming Manager, Chris Gordon. Before we get going, I want us all to take a little moment out of our busy days, and I know that you've had a busy day. I know that you have been pushed and pulled every each way. But I reckon we've all got to take a little moment now that we've found our seat, now that we've found our space, now that we're amongst our people, we've got to take a little moment just to pause and say, hey, let's remember that from wherever we've come from today, we're here on stolen ground, on land that's not been ceded. It's my role, Christine Gordon, as the Programming Manager of Readings, to greet you all, to welcome you all, but also to acknowledge the First Nations people, to send my respects to their elders. But I reckon, and I've said this before here on Zoom, I reckon it's not enough just to send our respects. So what I really want from you is a commitment that by the end of the year you've had access and you've made sense of some of the First Nations stories. They're just there. And once you start reading First Nations stories and once you start understanding and once you start listening, it makes more sense, this beautiful country that we live in. All of a sudden, the country, the trees, the rivers, the mountains all start making a lot more sense. So on behalf of all of you here, I want to say welcome to Readings. I want to say welcome to this event. And I want to send my respects to the First Nations person. But also, on behalf of all of you here, I want to send my gratitude. I'd like to introduce you to someone who has made it her life's work to make sense of other people's stories. And of course, that's the great academic, broadcaster, storyteller, author, Susan Carland. What a treat it is to have you with us tonight. Welcome, my friend. Thank you, Christine, and hello to everyone joining us. Judith Brett is the Emeritus Professor of Politics at La Trobe University in Melbourne, where she taught from 1989 until her retirement in 2012. She was the third editor of the literary journal Mianjin from 1982 to 1986. She's written extensively on Australia's political history as well as on contemporary politics and contributes regularly to the monthly magazine. Judith Brett, congratulations on this. Oh, thank you very much. I thoroughly enjoyed it and I would like to jump straight into talking to you about it because I know we don't have all night. 
So before we get into the actual, the nitty gritty of the, the details of the book, I want to start by asking you, you know, for the, for those people at home who maybe don't have a copy of the book yet, this is a collection of your writing spanning yeah. quite a career. How did you choose which ones to include? You would have had a, a, a lot to draw from. How did you decide which ones would make the cut and end up in the book? Partly for the earlier ones, it were the ones I could actually remember writing. um, because one does quite a lot of ephemeral stuff when you 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 bring things out so there were things that will say the bureaucratization of writing you know which I've remembered because I still think it and people have talked about it so it was pieces that I thought stood alone also as my writing developed it was things where I thought the writing was good there was a few pieces like I wrote an essay about my grandmother which, which I do think is quite well written, which I ended up not including because it it was a bit of a sort of an outlier. And then ones that I thought still would be interesting for people to read now. And then I did want to put in a section on psychoanalysis because mm-hmm. that's been really important to me in thinking in the way in which certainly in my early work I approached and thought about politics. Mm. When you were revisiting these pieces... What had you most hoped would be different about the world from the time in which you wrote it? Oh, that's a really good question. Well, I guess when I first started writing, climate change wasn't a sort of looming issue. And I sometimes now, you know, look back at times before 2000, which is probably when I first really realised the impact, the import of, of, of the dangers that the planet was facing And it's like there's a sort of innocence, Mm -hmm. I feel, in the period before 2000. And so I feel a sort of an innocence of myself in in those decades. So I guess what I would most hope now was that the world was taking climate change much, much more seriously than many of our leaders are. Mm. Is there anything that you've included in this book that you've written that you don't think you would or could write now? No, I don't think so. <laughs> Good. No, well, I, no, actually, I probably couldn't. The Chook in the Australian Unconscious, mm. which I wrote for a, a comedy issue, a humour issue of Mianjin when I was editing Mianjin and was written with a sort of joie de vivre. You know, I don't think I could write that now because I've never felt I've had a very good sense of humour. Well, I did laugh while reading this. I think it was when you, I think you were talking about Scott Morrison and you said you were talking about why people connected so well with him. And you said they couldn't connect with Malcolm Turnbull because he was too rich and they couldn't connect with Tony Abbott because he was too weird. (laughs) Yeah. I did laugh at that. I mean, that was good. Yeah. Well, yeah. But anyway, I don't think probably now I could write the chook in the Australian unconscious. Mm. But I put that in. Because it, it, because I it's a you know it's a piece of writing that I'm quite proud of. I loved that chapter. There was this one line in particular, just so the people at home can get a sense of not just your beautiful writing style, but also um, just your massive brain. I love this, and I underlined it. You said social status is often expressed by one's distance from nature. The more nature is controlled, and the more of it one controls, the higher one is in the human pecking order. And pecking order was a very clever play on words of what you're talking about. But I also, as soon as I read that, I'm like, yes, that's so perfectly put. You, you, you know, it is a beautiful piece of writing, that one, and very, uh, really enjoyable. 
Is there anything that when that you wrote that when you revisited, you were surprised at how prescient it was? Was there anything that you sort um, of were sort of you, you maybe were predicting or even prophesizing that would happen in the future that you realized that really happened? No, look, I think the thing that most struck me in revisiting my work was how I keep thinking the same things. <laughs> you know, mm. was, was how there was a set of questions, a foundation of questions that I had about Australia and Australian society and about the way the centre of Australian society works and that that I kept returning to, you know, that it's yeah. not, I'm not the fox and the hedgehog. I'm a hedgehog, you know. I, I just burrow away at the same things. And so that after the Menzies Forgotten People book, I kept mining that mm. in many ways for understanding Howard later. I mean, you then have to apply those insights to the changed circumstances and and think about how they're different. But there were these strands of Australian political rhetoric, I guess, that that I've been following through for 30 or 40 years. So I think that that was the thing that, that struck me was how I just kept working away with the same material in some ways. Do you think could that also maybe be that Australia keeps relitigating the same issues? You know, well, perhaps I, the politician changes, but these themes keep No, I think I think it's more that political traditions, you know, people are shaped in, in historically formed political traditions and as new leaders come along, they're shaped by those and then they they shape them themselves, you know. So I don't think it's that we're in a sort of a, a cycle of Groundhog Days. I think it's just that historical change in, in the ways in which people think and in structures of feeling is actually, for many people, not that fast. I mean, you have these, we would have once called them hegemonic, but these sort of mainstream traditions of thought. I mean, and I mean, one of the problems I think we've got with our current political leadership, and I think it's similar to what Donald Horne talked about in the early 1960s, is we've got a leadership group, particularly at federal politics, that have been shaped by earlier decades and are having real trouble responding to the ways, to the crises that are currently facing. So I, I think it's that. It's just people, it's like turning ships around, getting people to change. Yes, that's, that's a very nice image. All right, let's get into the, the nitty gritty then. You say on page three, Transformational leaders inspire. Transactional leaders reassure. Generally, a lot more people crave reassurance than inspiration, particularly when we're talking about prime ministers and electorates. And anxiety trumps hope. Is this what we saw play out in the pandemic, do you think, particularly when we think about uh, Scott Morrison? Look, the thing is with the pandemic, there was actually real things to be anxious about. Whereas often I think what we've seen in our politics, and I would look, I think the 2019 election is a paradigm of this, was some hope that Labor came forward with a a suite of quite ambitious policies. There probably wasn't enough of a narrative tying them together, but what Morrison very cleverly did was to make people anxious about that, to make people anxious Mm -hmm. about change. I suppose the other thing I think now is there's a lot of things to realistically be very anxious about there's the climate, and then there's what that impact is going to have on the Australian economy when we're stuck with all these stranded fossil fuel assets. And we have a government that is sort of saying to people, she'll be right, mate. You know, Mm. it's like, don't worry, don't worry, we've got it covered. 
when they actually haven't. You know, I'm 72 now, so my politics was, I was coming of political age in the early 70s and, and Whitlam was the big transformational reader of my generation. And that was a time of hope and, and yes, he crashed and burned in many ways, but it also, it changed a whole lot of things. And mm. the Hawke-Keating government changed a lot of things, but they changed them more at the level of the economy. They didn't yeah. so much, I think, change people's headsets. Yeah. No, um, in the way that Whitlam did. Wasn't the same sort of cultural change. Yes, that's right. Mm. Yeah, yes. Um, in your chapters on prime ministers, I'm really eager to get your reflections on on the echoes that they have today. So, for example, you talk of Deacon as this affable um, man who is genuinely desirous to work with the other parties. He ignored insults. He was compromising. He avoided conflict so he could maintain cooperation. He was a compelling orator. He was patient. He was far more interested in good policy than he was aligned to his party and he seemed to have little personal ambition. He was ambitious for Australia would probably be the way that that I read it. Do you think our current political system would allow someone like him to succeed today and do you think our public would allow someone like him to succeed today? Look, the big difference from, in terms of the political system is that we now have really disciplined political parties. Deacon learned his politics in the last decades of the 19th century when, before the Labor Party formed, when political parties were actually sort of quite loose factions of mm. people that, and they formed and reformed in the parliament. Once the Labor Party formed and it became a disciplined party with a disciplined organisation. Non-Labor had to do the same. And so I think that's really different. That's part of the reason why Deakin felt such an identification with the centre because he learned his politics in that way. I think the public is longing for less partisan political leadership. You know, people say, why can't they cooperate and get solutions? Why do they carry on in Parliament like a bunch of out-of-control schoolboys? But I, it's hard to know how the parties would allow that to happen. Right. Because they've got to win elections, you know. Like I think that in many ways Turnbull had the potential to occupy that space. You know, he, he inherited a very toxic party uh, and he probably didn't quite have enough parliamentary experience. Because the thing about Deacon is by the time he hits the federal parliament, he's already been in, mm -hmm. in a colonial parliament for two decades. So he's got a depth of experience. And I felt for a while, I mean, one of the reasons Howard did so well was that he had so much parliamentary experience. And I feel that a lot of our current leaders don't quite have that depth do you think the way, I mean, and you write about this, um, you know, so compellingly in the book that our current system and the way our parties operate internally but also with each other is so adversarial, almost just for the for the sake of it, that if someone like Deacon was coming up now, he, he would never be able to cut through even within his own party? Yes, I think so. And the other thing I, th I think is I think, well, Deacon went into politics very young. He was only 23. But... On the whole, in earlier generations, many people went into politics more in their 30s and 40s. Mm -hmm. I feel people are getting into politics too early. I think they, mm -hmm. I really feel, and people, you know, this has been said by lots of people, that that the training for politics through working for the party 
working as a ministerial advisor rather than working out in the world in business or as a, or in the professions or in the in, you know in a farmer or whatever gave people a breadth of experience that made them not so much these just team players you know because actually we we want we want solutions to national problems mm-hmm. and if you look at somebody like Scott Morrison like i just have read the recent biographies on him and what comes through there to me is that really his core is to be the state manager of the Liberal Party. You know, he's really, that's how he thinks. He thinks in terms of electoral strategy. He's really interested in who gets what seat. He's not interested enough in solving our national problems. He's just interested Mm. in winning elections. Mm. You end the chapter on Tony Abbott's approach to climate change by saying he owes Australia an apology for its wasted decade. When will he say, I was wrong and I am sorry? Do you think we have made it impossible for politicians to admit they got something wrong or to change their minds? Well, I don't think so. I mean, I don't see why he couldn't say that. He's not in politics anymore. What, What if he were still in politics? Do you think we allow our politicians or do we accuse them of flip-flopping? Well, who's the we? I mean, the media might accuse them of flip-flopping. Yeah. Um, We're seeing some flip-flopping now going on over electric vehicles. No, look, I don't know is the answer to that, but I certainly feel this really strongly about climate change. I mean, we're looking at the moment at the News Corps journalists all sort of repositioning themselves and somehow pretending that the last decade of their action didn't happen. I find it astonishing. Maybe he still doesn't think he was wrong. Yeah, that would be my sense. (laughs) Your chapter on meetings, bloody meetings, was an an absolute cracker just for someone who um, hates meetings with a passion. And it was a a great outline of of the history of the way meetings have developed and evolved in in Western society. But you also frame them to give us an important insight into why everyday Australians no longer trust politicians. Tell us about that. For the audience at home, tie this all into a bow for us. Oh, I'm glad you picked up that because that's one of my favourite chapters. I It disappeared into a Senate lecture series, so I was quite pleased to bring that back. Basically, meeting procedures for civil society were modelled on the way Parliament operated and there were these books of meeting procedures that told the chairman how to run a meeting and how to put a motion. And, and what I argue there is, well, it's not really an argument I stated, is that this sort of knowledge of, of meeting procedure was very widely held by people who ran the tennis clubs and the cake stalls and, and all of the organisations of community. Now, that's where people of my parents' generation learnt their meeting procedure. But now, if I think back on my experience of meetings, I mean, I learned a little bit of that because I was in the YWCA Girls Citizens Club when I was a teenager and we were told how to run meetings and give votes of thanks and things. But actually, most people now learn their meetings at work and the work Mm. meeting is a very different thing because it's about basically a manager telling people things and perhaps getting some consensus but maybe not. And so... People understood how Parliament operated and they had a practical knowledge of how meeting procedures and parliamentary procedures were connected. Whereas now Parliament just looks like some sort of rather archaic institution, I think. So I was suggesting that that's perhaps one of the reasons that Parliament has become detached from 
everyday social experience in a way that wasn't that it wasn't in earlier generations. So it's mm. not just that the parliamentarians are rude to each other and everything, because in fact, if you look back at the history of Parliament in in Australia, you know, there's some pretty appalling behaviour. I mean, there was one case where it was so chaotic that speakers said dreadful, dreadful and dropped out of a heart attack. So it's, you know, it's not as if there was once they were all civil and polite. Right. But people had some understanding of what was going on. Right. They had a frame of reference which yeah. they can't draw yeah. on now. And so, yeah. and as you say at the end of that chapter, no wonder we no longer trust them. And I wanted to ask you a bit more about this idea of, of us trusting politicians. I was at a conference recently and one of the speakers was talking about, you know, as everybody knows that the average Australian's trust in uh, government has gone off a cliff recently. That's no surprise. But what he was talking about is part of the problem is we don't talk about trust between government and people as reciprocal. We always talk about us trusting government, but never how much does government trust the people? And there is a sense that they don't, the politicians don't trust us, which is what it helps explain the popularity of someone like Pauline Hanson because her supporters feel like, I believe she actually trusts me. I believe she respects me as an individual. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, do you think, and maybe this sort of goes back to what you were saying about the problem with politicians sort of being these career politicians, they finish uni straight into the party, they're not out in the real world. Do you get a sense that maybe there is a lack of respect and trust from politicians towards the people? Yes, that's that's interesting. I mean, the way they would talk about the mob, you know, um, and I think too, but if you look at the decades after the Second World War, um, you know, there's all sorts of things about the politicians then that I, we wouldn't probably like now. But a lot of those those men had been in the war. They they had a much broader life experience. Somebody like Rupert Hamer had spent six years, you know, in the war before, and he he'd been a a, a Melbourne Eastern Suburbs private school boy, very narrow experience, not unlike Tim Smith, but I'm sure he didn't drink as much. Um, but then he went to war for six years, and so when he comes into state politics and then becomes Premier, he's got a breadth of sympathy. So it's not just the experience, it's the sympathy, yeah. you know, of, of, of understanding something about, about the different struggles that, mm. that people have. Um, so that's, that's an interesting point, I think. Yeah. And I think, you know, that one of the reasons Howard was so successful was that I think Howard did have a sort of trust in ordinary people. I think I think you're right, and I think people sense that. You can sense if if the politician does seem to trust or respect you, and yeah. if they don't, we don't like it. We yeah. it, it's returned. Um, actually, since you bring up Howard, I want to ask you about him, him as well. In your chapter called "Writing Ordinary People's Politics," you talk us through the idea behind that important book that you wrote. And you say, Howard haters are accused not of hating Howard's policies, but rather of hating all those Australians who voted for him. And then further down you say, in appeals to ordinary people, a left-leaning ear hears the siren call of populism. And as I read that, I wondered if this was something of a, of a foreshadowing of the sneering way people would talk about Trump voters. Um, Brexit voters, do you think uh, countries like Australia or the US or the UK, you know, you wrote that, I think that that one was, the, that chapter was from 2006, I think, from memory. Um, do you think back then we were starting to see the early signs of this, um, you know, what we're sort of seeing now play out in politics? 
Look, I think it was, you know, when Pauline Hanson came in in 1996, um, it was pretty shocking the way a lot of the elite media responded to her. She was mocked because she had red hair. She was mocked because she was a friendship lady. She was mocked for her accent. So there's always, you know, that tendency to make fun mm. of, of, of the bogan, and I think that's why, you know, she was um, so that it, I guess I was addressing that in a way to the left of saying mm. you've got to be careful about this yeah. this sort of fillet anti you know, this, this seeing people as, as Philistines and, and whatever. And I think that's what, like, ha that's one of the reasons that Howard didn't send her out into the cold. But the, the other thing I think that links to this is the fact that because we've got compulsory voting, yeah. somebody like Pauline Hanson and the people who voted for her are actually brought into the political system. Mm. And the mainstream political parties have to come to some sort of accommodation with them. Now, yeah. lots of people might not like the accommodation they came to, but they're not pushed out of the tent. Yeah. You know, they're there, they've got preferences, um, they're heard. You know, and, and I so I, I do think that our compulsory voting system forces politicians to listen, you know, more widely. Yeah, yeah, I loved your chapter on on compulsory voting. That was that was an absolute cracker. Uh, you know, probably I think the best, most concise uh, argument uh, for, for the fact that we have compulsory voting and, and the benefits that we that we get from it. All right, I want to talk to you about academia now. Um, I'm an academic. You're an academic, and there was so much in here that I connected with. But I also, as I was reading it, I wondered how much would the average person outside of academia know these things? So, for example, you, there's this great quote. It's a bit of a long one, but I'm going to read it from page 246. Well, you, I actually took a photo of this and posted it to my Twitter David because I thought it was so sensational. You say academic writing is writing that never leaves school that never grows beyond the judging, persecuting eye of the parent to enter into a dialogue with the society and culture of its time as an adult among other adults, with all the acceptance of mutual imperfection, which this implies, always seeking the approval of a higher authority. The academic writer endlessly defers responsibility. I write in this way because I have to pass the exam to get my PhD, to get a job, to get tenure, to get promotion. I write like this because it is what they want. I don't write in the way that is best suited to, to what I have to say or to win people to a cause, to change the world, to humiliate my opponents, to help people understand their lives, to please my readers or even to please myself. Never is the academic writer in that inviolate place described by Janet Frame where the choices and decisions, however imperfect, must be the writer's own, as individual and solitary as life and death. Which was what a great absolute cracking quote and I, as I said I wonder if people outside of academia realize this that as you say on page 238 the rule of thumb seems to be that the more widely a piece of writing is read the less use it is on an academic publications list that within universities um, writing for the people is actually not valued or rewarded particularly highly academics are clearly the loser in, in this closed self-referencing setup. But so is society. You know, society is missing out on, on, on the ideas and the contributions of, of academia. Um, how do we convince universities to change this? Well, look, I suppose there's two things I want to say there. The first is I think that one of the big 
problems. I wrote that when I was editing the engine mm. and the engine was in this sort of space where it was partly literary magazine, partly political cultural, but it was also academically serious, but it wasn't linked to a discipline. But as um, universities have become more focused on 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 research, the, the, the paradigm of research they have in mind is science and the way in which scientific publishing operates in relationship to, to research, and it doesn't suit the humanities at all, I don't think. Um, but I would also say, seeing as I can see Frank Bongiorno and Janet McKelvin on my screen, uh, and I can think of a few others, that history in Australia seems to me to be the area of the university which has has most survived as being able to provide spaces for people to write books because it's books, I think, in, in the first instance. I mean, it was through my book on Robert Menzies' Forgotten People, which did really well, that I developed a, a bit more confidence about my capacity to write for a general public because the thing about academic writing is that it, it doesn't really value the quality of your prose mm. or, or your voice. It doesn't value the literary qualities in, in, in your work. It's, it, it's linked to what you in the discipline and the way it's referenced and people clog it up with qualifications. I mean, by the end of my career, I mean, I, I did think, oh, I have to write some articles and I submitted a few articles to some journals and I kept getting rejected. So <laughs> I decided... <laughs> But actually, I couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't, mm. you know. I'd get, I'd get comments saying this reads more like a book chapter, um, or, you know, I actually this was to political science journals. I couldn't do it because I didn't. I was more interested in my argument than I was in the fate of the discipline. I mean, that's mm. the, the the other thing. But I do think that in Australia, uh, history has managed to still be creating, you know, providing space where younger scholars can look, can write for a public. But I think politics has um, political science, which is where I yeah. taught, that seems to have failed. And so what we've had is political journalists actually going into that space and writing the political, mm. much of, of, of the sort of contemporary political commentary, not, yeah. not, not people um, from the discipline. If anything, I think in inside academia and academic journals, we actually punish lucidity. If someone can understand your article, then you failed as a writer. It should be so impenetrable. No one's quite sure of what you've said. All right, there's another great quote that I want to ask you about again, because I think this would be a surprise to people outside of academia. Um, and you say this in this very, very cleverly titled uh, chapter called The Bin Fire of the Humanities, which I thought was Actually, absolutely... that wasn't my title. That was oh. something else. Well, <laughs> just, just take the credit. No, they won't know. Um, you say, just how far teaching has slid down university management's priorities was evident in the peak body universities Australia's response to the loss of 17,000 jobs in the sector since COVID-19 with more on the way. The emphasis was on the impact on the country's research capacity with not a word about the effect on undergraduate teaching. And in this chapter, you spend a lot of time talking about how, you know, universities are really rigidly focused on, on research. We don't give 
teaching, particularly of undergraduates, um, the priority that it deserves. And like I said, I think people outside of universities would be really surprised to hear that. Why do you think teaching matters so much less now than research does, certainly from when you started out as an academic? Oh, I think it's because of the, um, the, the international status system, which, the, which is based on on research and which the universities have been using to attract foreign students. But I don't think that the public would just be sh- be shocked. I think they'd be outraged. I mean, mm. what are our, our ta- I think most members of the public think that the taxes support universities so they will educate the next generation of, of our citizens. And they're really not doing that now anywhere near as well as they did a few decades ago. Um, and you know, we see it with the casualisation of, of undergraduate teaching in particular, with the fact that the ARC, when you get a grant, makes it a condition that you're not allowed to teach. Yeah. And I've always thought, why do you want to? T- why would one want to take people at the, the the peak of their careers out of the classroom when they can be, when when you know, like when they can be inspiring. Um, the, the next generation. And and I also think that for the humanities and for much of the social sciences, it's actually, it's the teaching that is the, the real justification for, for them, for the, for the taxpayer support that they get. I mean, I don't think it would matter if there was no research money going into the humanities because I think quite a bit of good research would happen anyway. Mm. But that's probably, I can see that. I don't think any, everybody else would agree with that. But I, I, um, yeah, you know, like even with the grants that I got, I would apply partly so I could get jobs for people. Um, but yeah. I, I never found having, like with research assistants, you, like in doing archival work and everything, I think you have to do it yourself. Yeah. Myself. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I'm conscious of the time. I've got two more questions that I want to ask you. Um, when was the last time that you were inspired politically, either by a politician or a policy? Inspired. Hmm. Inspired. That's a very strong time. What? When was I last inspired? Look, I was quite inspired by Keating. Hmm. Yeah. Say. Why was um, that? Well, be, because the the cultural um, agenda that he had when. He was really wanting Australians to think hard about our history, our, the settler in Australians' relationship with Indigenous history and with the stolen land. I mean, it, around the time, I guess, of of the Mabo decision and then the response to that. But he was also thinking, getting us to think hard about our position on the globe and um that we're down there at the bottom of Asia and that that's our geography that we have to think about, not our history. So I guess that would be, he would be my last inspirational hero. That was a while ago, Judith. It was a long time ago. I know I'm, I'm getting old. <laughs> no, it's not that you're getting old. It's more that it's yeah, been no, a but while I think you've been Yes, but it is because, I mean, I think it's been a pretty dismal, um, dismal, you know, certainly since, since Rudd. I mean, like... And to go back to something I said before, I mean, I think Rudd could have been good in many ways. There was much um, that he brought to the prime ministership that was valuable, but he wasn't an experienced enough parliamentarian. 
Yes, so what do, so what do we how do we how do we deal with that tension then so you know as you were saying which i agree with ideally you don't want people who are just the career politicians that the minute they leave uni or school it's straight into the office um but so we want them to be wor- working elsewhere is the is it just that ideally we would just have much older politicians people yeah, who well, have had things for a while longer and then sort of climb the ranks in, in politics. Yeah, and that it's at the end of their life, not 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 a sort right. of jumping off point to something else, you know, now I'm going to go off and make serious money, yeah. you know, sort of, sort of idea. I mean, you know, ideally I don't think they should go until they're about 40. Mm. And they've still got 20 good years in front of them. <laughs> All right, suggest so that to the IPA. Okay, last question. In a chapter on Malcolm Turnbull, you talk about his optimism and you discuss Alfred Deakin, who was also an optimist, who you say, uh, about who you say, Alfred Deakin regarded pessimism as a moral failing, describing it in an unpublished essay on optimism as a frost which threatens religious morality and society. Are you optimistic about the future of Australian politics? Not particularly at the moment, but sometimes I wonder if that's because of getting old, mm. you know. Um, you know, one has to protect oneself against becoming a grumpy old woman. I also do think, you know, that life renews itself and new ideas come along. I mean, so one of the things I wonder is whether the things that mattered to me and that inspired me um, are not as important to younger people, that they've got different issues but I guess the big, the big shadow over optimism now is is climate change and how mm. how we're going to respond to that and what what um, dangers that might be bringing to younger to you know to the newer generation. So I think, and I think a lot of people that I know of my age feel this. Um, mm. You know that there's there's that, but on the other hand. There's much that's joyful in day-to-day life and you don't want to you don't want the shadow of the future to somehow blot out mm. the, the, the joyfulness of, of day-to-day life and friendships and family. Yeah. Well, that is an optimistic note to end on, which is good because otherwise uh, Alfred Deacon said that was a moral failing of yours, Judith. So I'm glad that you were able to finish <laughs> positively. This is a fantastic book. I thoroughly enjoyed it. If you look through, you can see it's just full of my underlines, highlights, little asterisks. I really enjoy this book, Judith. I hope it won't be the last one that you put out, but I really encourage everyone if you no, haven't already, so go too. and get it. Yeah, churn out a few more of your very lucidly written books. Forget the academic journals. No one's reading them anyway. Judith, congratulations again. Thank you very much, Susan, for such a thoughtful conversation. My pleasure. Uh, to both of you, thank you for being part of the readings program. Even though we're on Zoom, I did feel like we were in the readings Carlton shop and I'm grateful to all of the audience that joined us there on that cold, hard floor. If we were in that shop, the applause would be quite extraordinary. Judith, let's put you onto gallery view and you can see how many of your friends and family and academics and your fans are here. And I'm so sure that not one single person would describe you as a grumpy woman. <laughs> I just don't think that's, that's possible. <laughs> on behalf of Text Publishing and on behalf of Readings, it's been a joy. Thank you for your, your work. 
Susan, thank you for asking such beautifully astute questions uh, to each and every one of you. Stay safe out there, keep reading, and we'll see you next time. You can stream previous episodes of The Readings Podcast on our website. We will also find all kinds of bookish recommendations and plenty of great books, music, film, and TV. You can also sign up to e-news or to receive our free monthly print newsletter, The Readings Monthly. Production for this podcast was by me, Nico Callaghan. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. All of our podcasts are recorded and produced on the lands of the Kulin Nation. We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and that sovereignty was never ceded. Thank you.